Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. speaking with Pip Wilson, the co-founder and CEO of Amicable. Now, Amicable is a lawyer-free alternative to divorce, separation and co-parenting that's really changing the way people divorce and separate for the better. Sadly, around four in ten marriages um, end in divorce here in the UK and going through divorce really isn't an easy process. Having been through divorce myself, I know that only too well and it's tough not just for the couple but for the whole family, especially when children are involved. So a service that can help you untie the knot in a really positive way without it costing the earth is a truly brilliant thing. And it's not surprising that Amicable have already won several awards. Co-founder Pip Wilson is an experienced entrepreneur. She previously co-founded technology consultancy Bluefin Solutions, which she sold in 2015. And Pip is also an angel investor focusing on female founders, which is interesting. So I can't wait to talk to her about that. Now, Pip has raised a total of a million pounds in funding to grow Amicable over three separate investment rounds. So let's meet Pip and find out more about Amicable and Pip's fundraising journey that she went on. Welcome to the show, Pip. How are you? Hi, Julia. Thank you very much for having me. It's really nice to see you. So, um, right, let's go back to the beginning. So tell me how you came up with this whole idea, because you're, you're not actually um, like a divorce lawyer or anything, are you? No, no, I'm not. And actually, um, the idea came from my co-founder, Kate Daly. Um, she had her own, unfortunately, train wreck of a divorce, which resulted in them spending a lot of money and going through a huge amount of pain um, through the whole kind of emotional journey and the courts. And we were friends at the time. We actually knew each other through, uh, through the world of NCT as our eldest children are the same age. and. I'd spent quite a lot of time watching kind of what she'd been going through. And she came out the other side and said, hold on a minute, it wasn't us that got this wrong. The process is broken. The process pits people against each other and actually makes it harder to come out the other side kind of with a good relationship and especially on being able to kind of co-parent your kids successfully. Um, so she retrained as a family consultant and started helping other couples go through it to avoid having the same problem as her. And we started talking about it more and more and that what she was doing was great, but it was still involving um, quite a lot of time from lawyers. Therefore, it was still very expensive and it was only working for kind of a, a small West London bubble where people were coming in person. And actually it needed technology and a kind of different approach in order to be able to scale it and have something that could help people across the country or potentially across the world. Uh, and that's where it really started. And, and one of the kind of key things for us has been that our skill sets are so different. 
So she's a psychologist who's trained and been doing this for, uh, God, probably seven or eight years now. Um, whereas my background is much more, as you said, business and technology. This is my second startup. So we both bring quite different things to it. And that's what works really well. Yeah, that's a really powerful combination. I mean, every founder dreams of having a technology partner. <laughs> so it must be wonderful to have you there with all of that knowledge. Um, so to, um, I'm intrigued to know, before we start talking about the, the fundraising journey you went on, sort of how, how do you make that business scalable? What is the technology that you plug into it to make it so that you can reach lots and lots of people at scale? Yeah, so it's an interesting and it's been a quite a journey for us over the last few years as to getting that balance right, because ultimately it's a very personal thing going through divorce. And for the vast majority of people, they do need a bit more help than you might be able to get with a purely technical solution. So what we did is we actually launched a, a product that was helping couples. So we were working with couples um, with a mixture of divorce coach, uh, of a divorce coach who would help and would kind of act as that middle person to get you to a conclusion. But additionally, we used technology to keep the costs as low as possible, to make it streamlined, and to mean that it could be accessed from anywhere in the in the country. Um, we have been doing uh, online kind of divorce coaching for probably four and a half years now. So it absolutely predates COVID, but obviously what's happened is world, world events have kind of shown that, that this model really does work um, and kind of backed up what we've been saying for quite a few years. Mm. Um, so it, it, the, the kind of the technology from the divorce side is very much on streamlining the process, collecting information in the easiest way, avoiding um, lawyer jargon by kind of leading people through what can be a very difficult process to navigate. Mm. Uh, and then being able to use virtual meetings to be able to kind of make your negotiations and finalize your arrangements. Yeah. So that's a lot of the technology. Um, just recently, however, though, we've, we've built a co-parenting app. And one of the key things for us is to continue to help our customers on the, the journey. And once you've divorced, if you've got kids, um, you are forever connected. So we have literally in the last week launched a co-parenting app that will allow people to continue to communicate in the right way and keep all their discussions about their kids in the same place. And so that that's kind a great of idea. Such a great idea. I'm sure you're making a huge impact in people's lives. So tell me about the first year then. So you have this idea, the two of you. Um, what did it need in the first year? How did you get it off the ground? And did you and you funded it yourself at the beginning, right? We did, yes. And obviously I'd had had an exit. So um it, and probably for us, I think it was probably the first couple of years actually, um, where we intentionally took it quite slowly. Now that's partly because both Kate and I were kind of wrapping up involvement in previous businesses. I was still doing kind of some consultancy for, for Bluefin. So we had to take it fairly slowly, um, but also because it's not a particularly quick concept to prove. <laughs> it always takes a while yeah. and it takes quite a while from a sales cycle and then it takes a while to go through the process. And we needed to know that we've got a product that worked for people. So we needed to work with as many people, as many couples as possible in order to test that process. Um, so, yeah, we self-funded. It was pretty much just the two of us. Um, and we 
gradually built out some technology at the same time in order to kind of show that we could get this working in a way that was actually something that that would work for customers. Mm. I think that's so wise, actually. I mean, taking your time at the beginning to really prove proof of concept, proof that the market what, wants what you have is, is so critical. And it's a, it's a common mistake for founders to kind of run before they can walk and try and re- raise investment before they've really got something solid. So I think that's a very sensible approach. Was it quite hard in those early days? I mean, you've got, I mean, you've got you have uh, children yourself running all of that with the kids as well. Um, yeah, it, it was, but, but again, we'd taken it slowly. So, um, and I have, uh, I, I'm in the position where my husband and I have a very equal relationship when it comes to everything from a childcare and, and kind of um, work perspective. So we've had periods in our life when I've been working full time and he's not been working and vice versa, or when we've both been working kind of three, three and a half, three to four days a week. So we can make that work in a way that works very well from a family perspective too. Um, and I mean, that's, that's a whole different topic, but <laughs> I believe in the fact that the thing that will really help gender balance more than everything else is changing the household responsibilities. Yeah, I couldn't agree really more. Yeah quite concerning that that appears to have gone back in the wrong direction from a COVID perspective um, and with extra pressure because of the hard homeschooling side. So, yeah. Yeah, total nightmare. Very frustrating. Very, very tough. I think women, we, tend to, we tend to pick up much more of that still. It's, it's surprising. So, I mean, did you, in those early years, are you self-funding, taking it slowly? Did, did you always have in the back of the uh, back of your mind that you would at some point need funding or did that, pop up later no no I think we already knew and that was actually one of the reasons that I wanted to do some angel investing is I wanted to understand it from both sides of the table so see how it felt because if I was going to go out to people and say I wanted to raise I wanted to know what (laughs) what um, I would be looking for and kind of really have that that picture and ultimately we do see technology as the route to growing this therefore we need to grow we needed to invest in that side and that requires cash um and secondly we're doing something different um a lot of people still say on a daily basis oh i didn't know this was a possibility i thought i had to have a lawyer and my partner had to have a lawyer um and we had to do it in a certain way and part of what we're doing is is kind of education that there is a different way to do it um and that as the law changes, which we'll do this year, to allow kind of couples divorce, effectively joint petitioning for divorces and removing the fault and divorce, that actually that being able to sort your finances together and your arrangements for children, et cetera, becomes even more important. Uh, But there is still a a kind of market education piece and a a brand building piece and ultimately that's expensive. When you are, I mean, you hear this word bandied about a lot in terms of revolutionising a market. Yeah. You can make that claim, but it feels like you genuinely are. And it, and it can be very tough to revolutionise a market that is very entrenched with a lot of people in that market who kind of want to protect it. <laughs> because it's lucrative, let's say. <laughs> yes. 
And that, that old adage that, you know, the only winners from a divorce are the lawyers, which is such a shame, isn't it, really? So I can see that the challenge you have there in terms of educating the market and you do need to have deep pockets for that. So, yes, makes sense. So so how so how far along did you get before you before you decided to go out for that first investment round? Um, it was probably about uh, 15, 15 to 18 months in. And and to be fair, we just did a very, we did a friends and family SEIS round um, with, I think, pretty much entirely existing contacts. So it was relatively, um, or a couple of, there was a couple of intros actually um, of people we thought would be really useful. Um, and yeah, so we did that and used that in order to kind of launch the prototype and really take it to market and, and do that. Um, and then since then, we've done two kind of angel rounds of um, between four and 500K. So let's go back to the first round because you make it sound super easy. Oh, we just did a friends and family round. I mean, it's never, it's never quite as easy as, <laughs> as that. Ooh, and also, I think many, many founders, particularly female founders, feel very nervous about going out to people they know and what they perceive to be asking for money, which I always challenge because it's not about asking for money. It's about giving people the opportunity to, to come on your journey with you. But how did you how did you go about asking your friends and family to, to, to join you? Well, I think I think you're absolutely right. And actually what happened was um, to begin with, we probably didn't. Um, we had obviously been talking to people around it, uh, it for a long time. And I put together uh, the funding deck and then I started by talking to uh, a couple of people I knew who had startups and saying, who's invested in your startup? Would they take a call? Would we be able to do that? And we got a couple of people who were quite interested. But in the process of doing that and while talking to friends and family, then we have friends then going, well, actually, I'd be interested. Um, and very carefully, kind of, if, they, if they were those that hadn't done much startup investment in the past, then certainly part of that conversation was, OK, you do understand the risks and this might come of nothing, etc. But obviously, the SEIS stuff, the tax benefits are so good and actually... Quite a few of our investors in that round were not regular angels, but were people who had have a good salary and the ability to be able to risk that level of SEIS funding because of the tax benefits they were going to get from that. And it's one of the best things I think we do for startups in the UK. Yes, I agree. I agree. Gosh, the day they take that scheme away, I will be really afraid. It was one of the big things they, they didn't do, which they should could have done in COVID, was to actually um, uh, expand that scheme mm. for a period of time or expand the amount that you could raise uh, mm. because it is it, it makes the conversation so much easier to be able to say, look, you're actually risking over £1,300 for every 10000 and it will make a massive difference. And then actually the conversations are a lot more straightforward. Did you have to explain the scheme to people or did you find that people already understood it? No, I think mixture, but certainly there are people who didn't understand it and didn't know what the benefits would would be, so. Good, well, I'm glad that it was useful for you. And and um, from memory, how many 
different people came in on that original round with you? Oh, um, it's around 10. Okay. It's slightly because there was a couple of um, cut married couple combinations where they then split it. So, yeah, so it's kind of between 10 or 12, depending on whether how you count that. So friends and family round done, you've got sort of 10 people who are supporting you and you went on to the next phase of your development. So what did that then allow you to do with the business, Pip? So that allowed us to launch it, um, to launch the technology part. So the initial app that we built and to start kind of getting paying customers through our our website. Um, And we really, we kind of went live initially with a, a kind of, and well, we had an app which helped people collect information. And then our first paying product was a, a end-to-end divorce services. Um, and what that taught us was that we had probably um, miscalculated who our customers might be in that the range of people who wanted the service was actually a lot greater than we, we thought. So we would, thought we would only appeal to a certain kind of profile of customer. Uh, and actually that didn't turn out to be the case, <laughs> um, which was a positive, um, but also that the educating couple people that you could do this as a couple was the big challenge that we were going to have. So it was often easy to get one person interested, but then once one person is interested, you then had to, or they then had to convince their partner. Yes, that's and tough. The more... And again, this is part of the um, kind of it just being something new, especially at that point, because their partner will go, well, no, you don't can't divorce like that. I've been told this, this and this, and I need somebody separate and they can't talk to me as well. And they won't be in part. And that kind of so getting over that hurdle, we realized that would require kind of more time and effort and focus on the approach. Um, So it was definitely it was the early adopters who were starting at that point. Okay. But interesting, isn't it? That those early years, what you do learn once you actually get your product in market. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So then I think that's a really good point. And I've had this conversation quite a few times with starters. And my view would always be you try and launch as soon as possible because you don't know what you don't know until you do it. And you can only do a certain amount of testing. Um, but you actually have to get it out there and then be able to adapt quickly. And as I say, we did a lot of manual work behind the scenes to begin with um, while we were kind of building out some of the technology back end. But it taught us so much about how we needed to do it and what customers would and wouldn't do with the tech and <laughs> how that would all work. Iterative, iterative, yeah, test and learn, iterative approach. And if, you, if anyone hasn't read it, the Lean Startup is definitely one to is a great book to read on that subject. (laughs) Um, So great. So then there came a point where you thought, actually, we need some more funding. How long did that first initial round, was it 150K that you did? I think that lasted us about a year. um, uh, And well, it was a year between rounds. So we would have started looking before then. Um, and that, I think that was really the right. Now we know what we're doing here. We now need to build out the technology so this so we can scale it um, or start to be able to have some scale. Um, and so it was actually more focused on technology with the first round than marketing. And that kind of balance has probably shifted over time. <laughs> so um, yes, uh, so yeah, that at that point we then kicked off a kind of angel round. Okay. 
Beautiful. So what was your what was your strategy for that angel round? How did you think about the kind of investors you wanted to reach out to and, and how did you how did you do it? Well, um, we one of the things we feel quite strongly about and one of the kind of founding principles behind Amicable was that there is a social purpose as well as a, a kind of commercial purpose to the company. Now, we absolutely want to grow this and make a huge difference and our, our mission is to change the way the world divorces um, but that's the social purpose of doing that it is an important thing so actually we did that as part of the round we reached out to um, people who we knew or investors who we knew had a interest in companies that might be doing stuff that did have a have an impact um, not the the real kind of pure impact investors because actually I think that could be very slow and very painful but angels who had expressed uh, an interest in looking at, at that route so that was kind of one of the earlier things um we did use one of the intro agencies um to help us source some investors as well and then we used our existing investors talking to their their network mm. so probably the three main routes Yes, networking, 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 isn't it? Yeah. It's your, have your octopus tentacles out everywhere. <laughs> and how did you find those conversations? You know, those first conversations where you're talking to people who didn't know you, actually, they're more professional investors. What were the, what were the hardest things about those conversations for you? Oh, God, okay, this is going back a while. <laughs> this was a few years ago, actually, that round. Um, uh I think it's not, um, I think explaining the process and why the process is different can be quite hard, especially if somebody hasn't gone through divorce. Mm. Um, we often say divorce is kind of the, the ultimate one-time purchase for a lot of people and that you're not, you, you don't, unless you've been right the way through it, you don't know what it is and how it works and, and quite, yeah, how much is involved. So that that was probably one of the key things we had to kind of was that a, was that was that a question that you asked potentially I would have said that first of all let me ask you a question have you been divorced before because anyone who said yes would probably get it uh, someone who hadn't <laughs> anyone who had pretty much volunteered the information in the first five minutes of the conversation <laughs> <laughs> So I don't, I don't think we necessarily asked, but we certainly always knew. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, but that's good. So, and they were there, where were their, where did their questions focus? Was it about scalability? Was it about team? What were the things that you found to be uh, most, of most interest? That's I, I think the thing with angels is every angel has a different agenda. Um, so I wouldn't have said there was one question that came up again and again. Um, for those that have been doing it for a while, exit is how are you going to exit and where is that going to come from is really key. Um, and that does get asked a lot. Um, but actually understanding the process and that we got some stuff of real value, I think came up too. Uh, and ability to scale actually has been quite an interesting one because we do have people involved. We have divorce coaches and this worry that there wouldn't have been, there won't be enough divorce coaches to meet our kind of scale. Uh, I think it's is something that's been asked, which is really interesting because actually it's not a problem we've, we've ever 
had in terms of when we've gone out to recruit, there have been some really brilliant quality people available and we get inbound applications quite regularly as well um, from people for, from either kind of a divorce coaching or legal background saying this really appeals. I want to work with couples. I really like the way you're doing it. That's brilliant. And it's I like the point you make there. It's an important one um, to recognize that every angel investor is different and they will have different imperatives. They will have different questions. And I think as founders, we have to be flexible and open to that. You, know, you can't just go in and deliver a 10 minute pitch and expect someone to just say yes. It's you have to be ready for, for questions and being perceptive and be able to have a, a conversation with an investor, not just talk at them. I think it's so important. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think that's the case. And I think it's also if you're looking, again, I've kind of had this conversation quite often with startups I've been involved in as an investor, and some of them approached me completely cold with no intro, et cetera, because I did a, I used to write a blog for UK Tech News for about a year. I did a monthly blog and I talked then about what I was looking for, for, um, for my investors and investments. And I'd said it was companies with female found, at least one female founder that were um, um, commercially viable and had real kind of route to, to scale, but also had a social purpose. So very similar to obviously what we're trying to create in, in Amicable. And, and I did get a couple of companies who would email me actually saying, look, I've seen you do this, this, and this, this is how we fit. Mm. Um, and I'd always meet them and I ended up investing in a couple of them as well mm. because they'd taken the time to get the research and to reach out with me because it was relevant to me. Yes. Um, and I think that applies both ways, ways round, but, and could sometimes be a, even more important than, than an intro, the fact that you actually know that this person is going to be the right fit and you're not wasting anyone's time. <laughs> yeah, so important. Just a little bit of research, a bit of personalization, building that rapport, it will get, it will open a lot of doors for you. It really will. So on that second round, I know it's going back a bit, and actually, you know, maybe it's a relevant question for your third round, which I know was also with angels. Were you looking for investors that would bring you more than money? And did you find that? Okay, so yes, yeah, so we have an informal advisory board and a couple of our investors have held very key positions um, in the past in, in relevant consumer businesses. So CFO level, CMO level. Um, and we also have a um, ex-managing partner of a law firm. So we have people who are certainly very relevant um, and can really help um, but it tends to work in a we keep them updated and then we reach out to them for specific um, things rather than it being uh, they're not necessarily actively involved on a kind of weekly basis but they are very useful people to have on our side. Mm, I mean it's never too early to build an advisory board I think many startups leave it a long long time before they bring in that senior expertise and it's so valuable and often those advisors can become investors too <laughs> so yeah and I was was the other way around because they invested kind of a small amount to begin with and then we and then we're on the advisory board but it, it I don't think that made too much difference it meant that they've kind of continued to to be involved so your third round which is your most recent one you did in the middle of a pandemic. Yes, that was an interesting games. <laughs> so how was that different from the previous rounds you'd, you'd done? 
Yeah, so this was, um, there, there's a bit more background to this actually, which was kind of possibly the most interesting part to us, um, was that we were actually going to do it last September, uh, se- September 2019. Um, but we um, actually ended up having to go um, to the High Court um, because what we were doing, we'd obviously had um, good advice, was completely fine. But because it falls in a slightly grey area, the judges wanted it clarified beyond doubt that there was nothing wrong with this. And the way that they did that was by effectively having a um, hearing for one of our cases that could then be used to say, okay, well, what is the judgment on where you can work with couples and where you can't and what can be done? So um, so that then obviously was something that um, was kind of, we knew was coming and it wasn't happening till December. So to fundraise with that in the backdrop would have actually just taken a lot of explanation. Yeah. <laughs> and, too much, and too much uncertainty and risk at that point. Yeah. And then what happened was uh, a case happened in December and the judgment came in January, which was overwhelmingly positive, saying there's a real need for, in society for what we do. And it absolutely it has no problems from a legal perspective. So that's great. And that kind of gave us that seal of approval. So we then pack ready to go, off to kick the funding round off. Um, and then kind of a week and a half later, <laughs> the world changed. <laughs> oh, so the timing, the timing thing is really important there because actually the, the best time to fundraise is off the back of something really amazing that's just happened. <laughs> Absolutely. So, in, like you say, it was perfect. It was absolutely right for you to delay that. But yeah, oh, we also um, on the bosses series on the BBC as well. So we'd had on the BBC website. So we'd had the High Court judgment, and then we were on the BBC website, and then it was just like, right, we are going to market. <laughs> we had a biggest ever hit. So we, so we were like, oh, we were saying this is going to be fine, and then oh no, it's locked down, and the world's stopping. And mind, you, mind you, I mean, at least like you say, you're an online business anyway, so there wasn't a need to pivot. And also, like probably, I mean, I imagine that there have been quite a few divorces that have come out of couples being locked up together. <laughs> it's really difficult because that tends to be the assumption. A lot of people have have said that, but I, um, what we found is, I think the divorce numbers haven't really changed. There was a little bit to begin with when a lot of people were at home and went, oh, let's sort this paperwork out. We've been meaning to for ages. But what's really happened is um, our business model has has kind of come into its own even more than before. So, um, yeah, on the whole, our kind of customer members have gone up a lot in the last year. But I don't think it's just because there's more people. I don't think it's because there's more people divorcing. It's... Uh, <laughs> it's um, and yeah. also probably the chances of it, you know, getting into court with the backlogs that are going on. You want to do everything you can to avoid that. Do everything you can to avoid court. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so we we kicked it off. We then stopped again and gave everyone a month to cope with the new world or the new world as it was then, uh, lockdown, and then resorted to Zoom. Um, I, don't, I mean, we... Looking back, it felt very painful at the time, but actually that was largely because we had so much else going on as well, so from the timing. But all of our investors came either from follow-on from existing investors or introductions from existing investors. 
um, which was great because it's the biggest validation you can have that people like what you're what you're doing. And yeah. um, so in the end, it actually, in terms of active time doing it, I think it was probably about two and a half months, which is not bad. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, a, a well-run campaign is three to six months. So if you've done it in less than three, that's great. And I've had, you know, lots of people experiencing a much more efficient fundraising process because there's not the kind of faffing around to go to meetings and coffees that take half a day. You do it now. 45 minutes on zoom or an hour on zoom instead <laughs> and I think most of them I think most of the people who invested it was one meeting then I sent details over and then they either came back with questions or we might have had another quick catch up but it was literally at that level rather than as you say yeah lots of uh, going lots of pitches or lots of talking to different people yeah amazing so let's, let's talk about valuation. Um, so you, you had a, a really great valuation on your last round, which was 4 million. So how, how has your valuation progressed through the years and how have, how have you found the experience of trying to work out what your valuation should be? Because it's, it's a really tough one sometimes. It, it is a really tough one. Um, and, I, and I don't think there is a, um, a single answer to that. I think there is a massive combination of looking at um, where you are in terms of um, effort, like in terms of faith you can give people that you can get to that next stage combined with how much that you need um, and how that's going to work in terms of having um, not giving away 70% of the company in the first SEIS round, making it then impossible to be able to do anything else and actually being able to convince investors, look, this valuation is right because this is how much we've progressed since the last round. This is where we are from a revenue perspective and this is where the traction is going. So the possible, um, possible upside. And if you look at all those factors, we think that's fair. And then there's normally a little bit of, negotiation around the edges <laughs> there's a lot of factors that go into it isn't it and as you say you it's about planning the whole journey rather than just thinking about the, the, the single round that you're working on yeah so that you don't shoot yourself in the foot and sell too much equity too soon <laughs> I think one of the ones that I think one of the interesting things to me though is that actually the more revenue generating you get sometimes the harder it is to justify a bigger valuation because you start to get into the point where there's more models that apply. So when you're doing a PE valuation and people go, well, okay, it's four times revenue or 10 times uh, EBITDA type of thing, you're then going, well, yeah, but we still effectively need to be valued as a startup because we need to raise this amount. Really and good point. Yeah, because early days, your sort of, your valuation is based on the, the dream and the vision that you're selling as opposed to the hard numbers and the book value. <laughs> it's like a... Absolutely. Whereas we actually now are, we're not far off the point where we're cash flow positive and certainly think that that is achievable quite quickly. But yet, in order to expand and um, really go on to the next level, um, there's, and if we were going to go internationally, then we absolutely need to do another investment round. So it's balancing those two, two things together. Yeah, and balancing what's the right amount to raise is that I mean? Is that always question? Have you have I raised enough? Never enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always fundraising, but that's hard to get right too, isn't it? Because you don't want to raise too much, 
but also if you raise too little then it, you don't make the impact you're constantly fundraising it's a it's not these are not easy decisions to make and there are no formulas really yeah, there's no formulas there's no um right or wrong either yeah absolutely you know you can look back in hindsight and go oh, i wish i'd done yeah but at the time you make the decision you make you know so do you think so so t tell us a bit more about where the business has got to so far you know in terms of your if you can share any of your traction where have you got to yeah i mean we're now at the point where we're taking on almost um a couple of hundred new customers a month on the divorce side um uh, and as i said kind of very revenue generating to the point that almost break even so um that's been very positive over the last year we've been growing at kind of 10 percent a month on average so it has been kind of a really really good level of growth mm. um and it feels that with the divorce side we have proved there's a market we've proved the product's right it works for people the end result is really good our trust pilot ratings are are on the whole brilliant we are top top of kind of the divorce space on on customer feedback um, so it really is now about scaling it and and reaching out to as many people as possible exciting and expanding the product set with things like co-parenting um yeah so so that's uh, uh that's where we're up to but to do both of those things that's why we're looking as to no actually we do need to do another round and and potentially looking to do a series a round relatively soon excellent how do you feel about that <laughs> um i'm genuinely as excited if not more excited now about the business than i have ever been um and we're really impatient to do things quickly mm -hmm. so this feels like the best way to do it and therefore I'm kind of excited to get to the point where the round is there and we've had quite a bit of inbound interest as well from um from vc so i, I think the timing is probably right um and we do we do need to do it to have that scale yeah, I mean, I think more than ever, we need more great female founders going that out there and raising and, and institutional investors are looking for great, they're looking for great startups, you know, so it's time for us to, to raise our heads above the parapet and go out there and, and scale the business. Um, I mean, did you, I'm interested to know, like, throughout your three fundraising rounds, whether you ever, whether you felt you experienced any kind of bias whether that was conscious or unconscious about the fact that you were two two female founders running this business um or was that something you just didn't experience i think it's i think it's a really difficult question to answer because i suspect most of it is unco is unconscious bias so we didn't get any conscious bias um apart from one conversation in the early days with a vc where he suggested that it sounded more like a lifestyle business to him <laughs> Oh, that makes me just want to kind of go and punch someone. That, that was really early stages, and I suspect that um, I that yeah, it's you learn a lot, don't you? And I probably said things that would never have been said by a male founder in the same position. <laughs> um, apart from one conversation where I was alluded to that it. Uh, might be a lifestyle business. Um, there's been nothing I've had that's kind of blatant, but I am very conscious that we have mainly done an angel round and actually I, I've done angel 
rounds and we have avoided going down the VC route largely to date because we weren't looking for the sums where it made sense to go down the VC route. Um, and I'm very conscious on the figures, um, as I'm sure you and all your, your listeners are, that they're very scary, that there's still a tiny percentage of funding. Mm-hmm. Institutional funding goes to female-founded businesses. I think it was about 11% last year. About 11% in the UK. But I think, I mean, there's multiple factors that go into that. And um, a big part of it is that, that, that you know, that there aren't as many female founders coming through and getting to the point where they're ready for VC funding. So that's part of the issue is there isn't the pipeline, but also that traditionally those venture capital firms have relied on networks that didn't easily bring in the diversity of pipeline. So I think some of those issues are being addressed now that we're doing things remotely because the networking is so different now. And the fact that you've already got through, you've, you've done your three rounds, you've had a million pounds in seed funding and you're proving it out. You know, I think by this point, I would hope that you don't you don't experience that um, gender bias when you get in front of people. But it will be interesting to see what your experience is. I think certainly the VC community are much more aware of the issue now and will be consciously thinking about the fact that they don't want to, dem- you know, demonstrate any bias. It's important. You know, so I would say to try not you know don't go with that preconceived idea because I'm really hoping that you don't experience it (laughs) I don't think you will but you know the thing is the the questions like the one you got asked about a lifestyle business and I think that that's a classic that I don't I can't imagine very many male founders ever getting asked that question and that kind of question comes early when you haven't yet proved it out whereas you've clearly proved that this is not a lifestyle business so you've got past that hurdle you know so fingers crossed you'll be good <laughs> so that so that next round is that something you're going to be looking at for for 2020 what year are we in now 2021 yeah pretty and pretty imminently yeah exciting and what's the plan with that round then so this is about launching your co-parenting app uh well we've launched it but it will be about growing it um and um, largely about continuing to market the divorce side um, and then uh, looking at probably seeding first. So it sounds like you've got an incredible journey ahead of you, Pip. Um, I'm super excited for you. I think the world really needs what you have to offer. If you can make divorce um, less painful for all those couples out there, then that's a wonderful thing. So I wish you all the best. Um, thanks for your time really appreciate it my pleasure julia thank you for having me and and kind of highlighting what a, a female founders experience is as well thanks for following fundraising stories with female founders this content is all provided to you for free so if you've enjoyed today's episode please subscribe so you never miss another one Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.